Let me pray together as we consider God's Word together. Lord, I thank You so much for Your Word that we have read already this morning, for the words that we have sang already to You. I pray that our hearts and our minds would be open to receive Your Word today. I pray for the children with us this morning. I pray as they draw, as they hear different words, I pray that You would help them in their understanding of You. I pray for the parents, Lord, as they sit with their children. I pray that this will be a time where family can hear the Word together. And I pray for all of us here this morning, wherever we're coming from, whatever our background, whatever our place, we know that there is no accident, Lord. We know that we are here this morning, at this very moment, in history, to hear from You. I pray that we will know that this moment is from You. Speak, Lord Jesus, we pray. We need You to do that. And so we ask that You will, and trust that You will. In Your precious name, I pray all of these things. Amen. Whether you are a Christian or not this morning, there is something that is true for you and for me. And the thing that is true for you and for me is this. All of us, whether you're a Christian or not, basically, if you are a human being this morning, and I think most of us check that box, if you are a human being this morning, you have a pattern in your life. You have a pattern in your life. Some people call it cycles in our lives. We work, we're, very, we're, we're kind of creatures of habit, aren't we? Oftentimes, we'll work in patterns and we'll work along with the habits that we have. We'll work in cycles. And so, whether you're a Christian or not, you have a pattern in your life. Your life follows after a certain, certain cycle, a certain pattern. And, and the way I know that, here's how I can prove that to you. Probably the last time you had a fight with someone or an argument with someone that's close in your house. Now, I know maybe these, the people in this church are too holy to have fights and you're all, all pristine and good. Well, that's not me, but if that's, if that's you, well done, fair play to you. But most people, when they get into an argument or a fight, you will recognize the pattern in the other person because you will say something like this. When you fight with the other person, you will say something like this to them. You always say that. You always do that. You're always like that. Always. Always. By the way, that is a really, really heightened language to use. You always. Because what's happening when you say you always to that person is you're always going to hold them to account to that thing over and over and over and over and over again. Which means forgiveness actually hasn't happened in that area if you keep holding them to account of that area over and over again. But my point is this. The very reason that someone might always do something is because that person has a pattern in their life. They have a cycle in their life. And what we see in the book of Judges is this. There is a pattern that happens again and again. And again, this morning as I was singing, I realized I forgot the spinner. And I wanted to show you the fidget spinner again this morning, but I forgot it. But, but what that spinner will do, if you can imagine it's in my hands, it will show us the pattern that happens with God's people. So I want you to imagine that I'm holding one in my hand, and there's four prongs, not three. And what happens is you, you spin it around, and that's what happens with God's people. The first prong is this, sin. It always begins with sin for God's people. 
And after that, there's the consequence of sin, which is suffering. Sin, suffering, and then after that, there is sadness. And finally, there is salvation. And what happens in the life of God's people is this cycle, this pattern, just keeps happening over and over and over again. Why does a pattern keep happening over and over again? Because we never learn, do we? And so you'll see this pattern throughout this book. And this is why I had Matt read for us um, Othniel's story, Othniel's account, because I'm not going to go through it all with you. But what I want you to see is that Othniel is the first judge, the first major judge that shows us this pattern in perfection. He shows us this pattern in perfection because what you're going to realize as we go throughout the book, things don't get better, things get worse. And so this pattern, this is where we first see it in its most pristine form. So where does it all begin? What's the first one it begins with? It begins with sin. And so verse 7, it talks about people who did evil in the sight of the Lord. Why did they do evil in the sight of the Lord? Chapter 3, verse 7, because they forgot the Lord. They forgot the Lord. That's why sin started. Your sin will always begin with this. You have forgotten the Lord. If you begin in sin, you have forgotten Him. This is why I think the Lord has us repeat things over and over again when we gather together as, as His people. He wants us to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Why? So that we do not forget. That's why I loved singing Jesus Paid It All this morning. Because sometimes I forget. Sometimes I think in my life, I need to pay for my sin. Even though I know it theologically, I know it all good, but, but works comes in. But when we sing together, we're reminded, Jesus has paid it all. He really has. And so this is why He has us sing. This is why the Lord said, you know, take from the cup and the bread and do this in remembrance of me. Why do we do it every week? Because we forget. And the Lord knows that, and the Lord knows we need to be reminded. So, the pattern starts with sin, and the reason they sin is because they forgot. And after the sin, there is suffering. Verse 8 tells us of the suffering that they were given over into the hands of the king of Mesopotamia, and they suffered under him for eight years. That is the suffering that they come under, sin, suffering. But you might say that suffering, oh, that's, that's, that's a bad thing for the Lord to do for His people. But actually, the reason the Lord sends suffering to His people is to do what? To draw them closer to Himself. Because if they did not experience the suffering, they would not come to the place of sadness. And so what you will find in your life is this. When you are struck low, do you ever find this? When you are low in life and down in life, your prayer life increases. I pray far less when things are going well. I pray far more when the Lord has brought me low. And so the Lord, even in sending suffering, He's doing that as a mercy and as grace for God's people that they might cry out to Him in sadness. And you see this sadness in verse 9, but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel. And so that's the pattern. Sin, suffering, sadness, salvation. The Lord 
brings salvation to his people. The Lord's grace upon grace. You know, I was driving the kids into school this morning, or not this morning, <laughs> thank the Lord I wasn't doing it this morning, but I was driving the kids into, this, into school one morning during the week, and the traffic has got much worse. Again, people are starting to go back to work, and, and I was a bit frustrated with the traffic, I'll be honest with you. Because, you know, it's, it's pretty annoying. It's pretty hard to get up early in the morning, then get everybody ready in the morning, then get everybody fed in the morning, then you have to drive in the morning. And not only do you drive in the morning, but you get stuck in this line. So here I am in the flesh, Shane Dean, frustrated by this traffic. And then Tally says to me this. She says, Daddy, out of the blue, she says, Daddy, you know what? That song, His Mercy Is More, is really true. My sins, they are many. His mercy is more. She said, Daddy, that song is really true. I said, why? She said, because God's people kept sinning over and over and over and over and over again. Yet God saved them. His mercy is more. So here I am in my flesh, as angry as I can, and, and this holy spiritual angel beside me is saying, His mercy is more. His mercy is more. She's not perfect either. I've seen it too. But what a grace of God to hear of the grace of God in that moment. This is the cycle that God's people go through. In this book, sin, suffering, sadness, salvation. And then a problem happens. At the end of verse 11, it says this, then Othniel, the son of Kenes, died. And we all know when the leader dies, that is a problem because in the book of Judges, you will see this pattern too. When the leader dies, everything crumbles. Because earlier in chapter 2, verse 19, it says this about the pattern. Whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. You see, whenever they lost this leader, this deliverer, this one who was a warrior for them, a leader for them, whenever they lost him, they turned back and went worse than they ever were before. And so the pattern, the cycle begins again. And where is it going to begin with? You can say it. What's it going to begin with? The first S? Sin. Verse 12, Ehud's account. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, in one verse, verse 12, you have a repeated phrase, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But there is a word, not a phrase, a word that gets me. And the word that gets me is the word again. Again. Because that's my life as a Christian. That's my experience. Again. Do you ever have those again moments in your life? Where you come up and you do that sin and commit that sin again. 
the one that raises its head again. All of us experience that, don't we? We sin again and again. It is the pattern of our life. We move as people, we move in cycles, and there's often these cycles, maybe addiction cycles or whatever that we have, and, and often what starts the cycle, what kicks off the cycle for us as God's people, something that kicks off the cycle for us is, is, is maybe when you feel bored, or when you feel stressed, or when you feel hurt. Do you know when you feel bored or stressed or hurt? Do you know what you need to watch out for? The cycle starting again. Because when you feel bored or stressed or hurt or many other things, someone's hurt you or afflicted you, many other things, do you know what you're going to go to? You're going to run to your idol. You're going to run to your sin. You're going to try and soothe that hurt or that pain that you have. You're going to try and soothe it. You're going to try and help it. You're going to try and comfort yourself. You are going to try and escape. And we try lots of different things. We try overeating. We try undereating. We try hurting ourselves. We try watching foolish things. We try binge watching. We try drugs. We try alcohol. We try all sorts of different things to soothe ourselves. And what we are entering into in those moments is this same cycle. It is the cycle of every human being that we get involved in. And so when we see this word again, it is true for them and it is also true for us. And what they experience after this sin that they did before the Lord again, it says this in verse 13, He gathered to Himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms and the people of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. Sin, suffering, the consequence of their sin. They took over the city of Palms, King Eglon, the king of Moab, took over the city of Palms, and another name for the city of Palms is what? Jericho. The city that represented God's victory is now the city that represents the, the defeat of God's people. And so they come under suffering for 18 years from Moab. And after the suffering, there is sadness. Verse 15, Then the people of the Lord, then the people of Israel, cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. Ehud, son of Gerah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. You see, we know what the pattern is going to be. We know it is going to be sin. We know it is going to be suffering. We know it is going to be sadness. We also know there is going to be salvation. We know that. It, the book gives, us the, gives the game away before it even begins. There is going to be salvation. The question is, for us throughout all these accounts, with all these deliverers, is how is the Lord going to do it? How is the Lord going to bring about the salvation? We know He is, but how is He going to do it? And what we hear about this guy, Ehud, that the Lord raises up, this great deliverer that the Lord raises up, we hear two strange things about him. The first is this, that he is left-handed. Why on earth would it bother telling us that he is left-handed? 
It seems like a pointless detail, really. Do you ever walk up to a friend and ask, are you right-handed or left-handed? I don't care what hand you are. It doesn't really matter. So you wonder, why on earth would they say it here? Well, it seems to be that for a left-handed person in that time, there's no problem being left-handed now, but to be left-handed in that time would have been a sign of weakness for the warrior. They would encourage warriors to fight with their right hand. You will know in the Scriptures that the right hand is a sign of strength. It is my right hand that protects you. I will lead you by my right hand, says the Lord. And so the right hand is a picture of strength. And so to have this left-handed deliverer, it is what? A picture of weakness. And most commentators would tell us that it's not actually that he's left-handed, but actually the translation would, would, would say to us that he is crippled in his right hand. So it means not only is he left-handed, but he's crippled in his right hand. He's weak in his right hand, and all he has got is his left hand. This is the type of deliverer they have, a left-handed deliverer, which means you're not going to expect this guy to do anything or much at all. That's the first thing about him. He's left-handed. The second thing about him is this guy can make swords, and he can make double-edged swords. And when he makes the double-edged sword, if he was right-handed making it, he would put it under by his left thigh. But no, he is left-handed, and so he puts it to his right thigh, which means not only is he going to be unsuspected when you see him because of his crippled hand and just his left hand, but also if you were to search him, you're not going to search this side. You're not going to think about that. And so the Lord sends this deliverer. And this deliverer, he comes up with his tribute, he comes up with his money, and he comes to King Eglon. And what we hear about King Eglon is two very significant things. Verse 17, it says this, And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. So there's two things we learn of Ehud. He is left-handed and he can make swords and he puts the sword to his right thigh. And then there are two things we hear about Eglon. And I know, I know this is not politically correct, but it says it. What is Eglon? He is very fat. He is extremely fat. In fact, even this translation is quite polite with how fat this guy really actually is. He is an extremely fat guy. And you kind of think, what on earth is going on with the details of this account? Why do I need to know that one guy is left-handed? And why do I need to know that the other guy is very fat? Who cares? But not only is he very fat, and not only is he, you know, the king of the land, but he is also a curious king. Because the moment that Ehud says to him, I have a secret message for you, he thinks a secret message for me? 
a secret message all for me. What does the king do? He sends everybody out of the room. I've got a message. Get out. And this guy, he's going to do me no harm. I mean, he, he's a left-handed guy. He's not going to do any harm. He's, he's crippled in his, in his right hand. He, it doesn't look like he has any sword on him or anything like that. Let's send everybody out. I'm going to hear the secret message for me. And then if you'll allow me to summarize for a second, here's what happens. The king is sitting down in his presence. Everybody is out of the room. And Ehud walks up to the king. The king is sitting there. And Ehud says to him, I have a message from God for you. Not just a secret message. A message from God for you. Well, I mean, this curious king, he wants to hear this message, and so what does he do? He actually decides, I'm going to get up off my chair for this thing. You know, when he stands up, it's a significant deal. So the guy stands up, the king stands up, and Ehud takes his moment. He takes out the sword, and he thrusts it right into his belly. And here's what the detail, here's here what the detail says, verse 22. It says this, and the hilt, and the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. This is in the Bible. I really like the Bible, and I really like this story, and this is a story that we often ignore, isn't it? He gets the dagger, he stabs him in the stomach, so much so that the, that the fat end, kind of goes over the dagger, and the hand is still in the stomach. And he leaves that out, and not only does he fall in a pool of blood, but it says, what, what does it say? and the dung came out. There's some English translations that say this, and it came out, and it came out, as in it kind of, it kind of almost alludes to the fact that the dagger came out the other end. No, it wasn't that that came out the other end. Man, he wishes that it came out the other end. No, it was the dung that came out the other end. And you know, when I was telling this story, it was a bedtime story for my kids when they were a lot younger, I told them some bedtime stories through the book of Judges, and they absolutely loved it. And so what I told them was, was this guy comes up, he stabs him in the stomach, the belly goes over the knife, over the blade, and what came out? And you know what my kids said? They said, the poo came out. Because it did, and you laugh, and that's exactly what you're supposed to do with this account. Because one of the ways God's people attacked their enemies was with the pen. And the one way you attack your enemies with the pen is you use satire to humiliate them. This is exactly what the book of Esther does. And this is exactly what this passage is doing. So that when God's people rehearse this story of God's deliverance, they look at it, they listen to it, and they laugh. And that's exactly what we should do. The Lord has delivered His people. 
He locks the door. Then look at the detail, verse 24. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in, in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and they laid there, and, they, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. They went out of the room. The room is locked. They come back to the door. The door is locked. They think to themselves, surely he is relieving himself. Maybe because the door is locked or maybe because of the smell in the room. And so they stayed there until what? The point of embarrassment, which is probably what some of you feel while I'm telling the story. They waited there to the point of embarrassment before they even tried to open up the door. And then they said, forget this. We're just going to open up this door. And they open up the door, and what do they see? The fat king dead on the floor with a pool of blood and a pile of poo. Ridiculous, right? But what does this tell us? Their Lord, small l, is lying there de dead. Our Lord Yahweh, He has got the victory. That's what this account tells us. He has won the victory. Verse 26 says, Ehud escaped while they, while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped at Sira. Which means this. Verse 19, way back, says, he was about to leave and he sees the idols. Verse 19 says, he sees the idols, infuriated by them, turns back and he kills the king. After he kills the king, do you know what he does? He runs past the idols. You see, the Lord has given the victory, but what happens? They still run past the idols. What were God's people meant to do with the idols when they got into the land? You are supposed to, what did the Lord say? Tear them down. What do they do? He still kept them up. You see, even when the Lord gives and brings us salvation, do you know what we're still battling against in our lives? All of the idols that we have. All of the idols that we run to. Sometimes we still leave those idols up, don't we? And we don't battle with them in our lives. When the pressure, when stress hits, when hurt hits, when sadness hits, do you know where you'll run? You'll run to your place of worship. You'll run to your idol. And in a small way, what this is showing us is they kept the idols up when they shouldn't have done it. We as God's people need to battle against the idols that we have in our lives. This is why I love for the women's study. Do you know what they're going after during the women's study this year? They're going after idols. What idols do we have? How are we going to battle against our idols? How are we going to fight against them? Not leave them stand. Because when we are saved, yes, we are saved from our sin, but there's still a battle that we have. Don't you have idols that you worship in your life? Something. We're made to worship, and sometimes we displace that worship onto other things. That's idolatry. But we're caused to fight it. Anyway, the end of the account goes like this. Verse 27, let me read to the end. 
When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Ephraim went down with him from the, hill, from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Salvation. The Lord has brought about salvation. Now, how did the Lord do it? The Lord did it through the most unexpected of ways. A left-handed, weak, unsuspecting deliverer. The Lord brought about His salvation and this, in this weakness, they defeated 10,000. The passage emphasizes strong, able-bodied men. The Lord brought His victory. How has the Lord brought victory to us? The Lord brought salvation and victory to us through weakness. It was through a man of sorrows. It was through one who was despised and rejected. It was through one who had nothing in his appearance to attract us to him. You know those pictures of Jesus, you know, he's got like the blonde hair and the pristine white face and all those. You know those pictures of Jesus? There is no way he looked anything like that. There's no way. He had nothing in his appearance, nothing in his appearance to attract us to him, which means it would be possible for Jesus to have walked in a room, a crowd full of people, and we think, oh yeah, the best people, everybody notices them. If he would walk into the room, not anybody would have noticed him until after he started doing all the miracles. Then people started looking at him and noticing him. But when you would see him just in his appearance, there was nothing to attract us to him. A man of sorrows. We were saved by weakness. He was born in an animal feeding trough in a stable. He was rejected by his own people. He was rejected by his own family. He was denied by, by, by his, his own disciples. He was betrayed by his enemies, and he lay there on the cross forsaken by his Father. And it was on the cross that we got victory. Our Lord brought us victory through weakness, not strength, through weakness. That's a good thing for you and me, because you know what I often feel in my life? I often feel weak. I know I shout up here and scream up here, but I often feel weak. I pray and I plead that the Lord will help me there are times I feel weak in my sin. Do you know what's good news for me and for you? God not only saved us through weakness, 
but he loves to use weak people. He loves it. In fact, Paul boasted one time, you know? Paul boasted on two things. He boasted in the Lord, and the other thing Paul boasted in was what? His weakness. He said, I'm going to take my weakness, and I'm going to boast in it. All my afflictions, all my ailments, all my weakness. You know, Paul had nothing to attract us to him either. He wasn't even eloquent in speech, Paul. He was eloquent certainly in his writing. Nothing to attract us to him. And yet, what does he do? He boasts in his weakness. Why? Because it is through weakness that God gets all of the glory. And what Paul delighted in was when I am weak, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Because when I am weak, he gets glory. Sometimes we sit there and say, could God use me? Could God use me? I'm so weak. I'm so frail. I'm not like those people. You know, sometimes we come into church. It's impossible not to compare okay? We're stuck in a comparison mind game. We are. And social media teaches us that. I can struggle with that sometimes. Comparison. You kind of look at people and you compare. Always comparing. And so what can happen to us as we come into church is we kind of compare ourselves. We look at people and we say, that looks like a spiritual family. That looks like a spiritual person. That looks... Let's just forget all the comparison and embrace our weakness and know this. Jesus loves it. Because it's through our weakness He gets all the glory. And I know this for this fact. Allow me to say one more thing, will you? I know this for this fact. There's a fella, Shamgar. Shamgar. You know, in heaven one day, you're going to go up to heaven, and you'll meet this guy, and he'll say, Hi, my name's Shamgar. You'll say, Shamgar? I don't know who you are. Who, who are you? He'll be offended that you don't know him. You'll say, well, my name's Shamgar. You know, I am in the Bible. Then you start to get embarrassed because, you know, I should know he's in the Bible, but I don't actually know he's in the Bible. He says, my name's Shamgar. I'm in the Bible. Really? You're in the Bible? Um, Yeah. Where are you? He says, I've got one verse. One verse in the Bible. You've only got one verse in the Bible. He says, yes, I've got a verse, but it's a good one. It's a really good one. And then Shamgar in heaven, he comes to you and he reads his verse, and his verse says this. It's verse 31. Chapter 3, verse 31, it says, After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. This story is not fancy, isn't it? There's no sin, suffering, sadness, salvation. There's no, you know, hiding the, there's no fat guy. There's no, none of this. None of that detail. No, no, nothing. The only thing we know about this guy, the only thing we know about this guy is what he killed 600 men with. And what was it? It was like this long eight foot stick with a spike on it. So what we know about Shamgar is this. Shamgar was a farmer with a stick. And the farmer with a stick kills 600 well-trained, armed Philistine warriors, which tells us what? God loves to use weak people like you and me. And so Shamgar, even though we've never heard of him and don't know him, and he probably won't be famous in heaven, though now you know his story, you'd like to meet him. Guy who killed 600 people with a stick, pretty cool guy. But what it tells us is this. God loves to use weak people. What if God would use you? What if God would use you? Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your salvation, that we were saved through weakness. And often, Lord, we feel weak. Lord, probably this morning, many of us came in here feeling defeated, defeated by our sin, defeated by life and stress and pressures. I pray that in that weakness, we will know that you can still get glory. In that weakness, we can still be strong through you. In your name, we pray these things. Amen.